You are listening to Cortez Radio CKTZ 89.5 FM. The opinions expressed in the following program are not necessarily shared by the Cortez Radio Society, its board, staff, volunteers, or members. This is Max Tyson with Cortez Currents. In today's program, we visit with Rex Weiler to discuss the positive impacts from the COVID-19 coronavirus, where it truly came from, and where it might take us. Let's call it the lesson of the virus. Okay, so my name's Rex Weiler. Uh, I'm an ecologist and writer. Um, was involved with Greenpeace in the 1970s and still to this day. And I publish a, a column on Greenpeace International website monthly on environmental issues. So today we're here to talk about the coronavirus and the impact this pandemic is having on the world and where this coronavirus comes from and how it may change our society and perhaps for the better. So first of all, let's talk about the source of the coronavirus. This pandemic is a symptom of what I call overshoot. Overshoot is the ecologist term for what happens when any successful species grows beyond the limits of its capacity of its habitat. Overshoot is extremely common in the natural world. Every successful species tends to overshoot the capacity of its habitat because natural evolution teaches species to reproduce and to aggressively consume. And it doesn't teach species when to stop. So if you have a a pack of wolves that enter a new watershed that has lots of deer in the watershed, a small pack of wolves will grow and they'll eat the deer and they'll grow and eat more deer and their population will increase until they've exceeded the capacity of that watershed and killed off too many of the deer. And then the wolves will begin to die back. This is common overshoot. So successful species in any environment tend to overshoot their environment. Humans have now overshot the capacity of the entire earth. All of our environmental challenges that we now face, climate change, toxins in our environment, uh, species diversity loss, and now this pandemic uh, and past and future pandemics, as well as conflict and war and poverty and other social issues are all related to overshoot and are all symptoms of overshoot. There's simply too many people consuming too much stuff. Everything we consume requires energy, and right now, 80% of the energy that humanity uses is fossil fuels. Whenever humans begin to collect together in large urban centers, first thousands and tens of thousands and then millions of humans living close together, it's essentially a monoculture that gives the pandemic a better chance of, of developing and, and thriving and The density of human habitation is directly connected to the success of a a viral pandemic or a bacterial pandemic. Well, so the question arises, I mean, maybe our numbers aren't so important. Maybe it's just our lifestyle. And uh, if we we had a different lifestyle, would 8 billion people be more sustainable? Possibly. But it doesn't change anything. There are still limits. Trying to keep 8 billion people, seven, right, 7.7 right now, 8 billion people alive, or 9, 10, 11 in the near future, uh, is going to require a certain amount of resources and energy. And so there's still 
limits. An overshoot is still a real thing, and you eventually reach your limit unless the species figures this out and chooses not to continue to grow, which no species in the history of the world has ever done that we know of, and humans have not done it. Humans are smart enough to be aware of what we're doing, and there were calls for humans to control our consumption and population decades ago, back in the 60s and 70s. Paul Ehrlich wrote The Population Bomb. Uh, the Club of Rome wrote The Limits to Growth. This was all understood, well understood, and well spelled out by ecologists for the last half century. And we have not heeded this message. And so the answer is yes, the earth could support more people if all those people consumed less stuff, but there are still limits. About a year ago, I wrote to 60 ecologists, researchers, scientists that work in the field of ecology and biology and human health. I asked each one of them the same question. If humans were to live a not necessarily an extravagant lifestyle, but a basic simple lifestyle where we had enough food to eat, computers, warm homes to live in, and so forth. What do you think might be the sustainable population of, of the earth for humans? I got about 30 responses from 65 emails from people who know what they're talking about. And the estimates of a sustainable human population were between a hundred million and one billion. Those were the estimations. We could assume, wow, maybe some of them are wrong. Maybe the low estimates of a hundred million is way too low. Maybe it should be more than a billion. Okay, maybe it's twice that. Maybe two billion people could survive on Earth with decent lifestyles sustainably. But it's not much more than that. And we're now approaching eight billion. We're way past sustainable. By the way, you can overshoot the capacity of a habitat by quite a bit. But to do that, you have to continually degrade that habitat so that the, the, the capacity of the habitat is shrinking because you're degrading it. So we're degrading our habitat all around us, more toxins in our environment, less forest, forest fires, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and now this pandemic. And this stuff will just go on and on and on until we solve the fundamental issue which are too many humans consuming too much stuff on a limited planet, on a finite planet. I mean, even Thomas Malthus, who, who has been savaged by modern industrial capitalists who say Malthus was wrong, there are no limits to human growth. Malthus was dead right. And the limits to growth study that was done by the Club of Rome in, and published in 1972 was dead right about almost all of it, and all of their predictions about population growth, growth of toxins, and decline of biodiversity, and pandemics and other problems that are going to come from overshoot. They were exactly right. And here we are 50 years later, and almost all of what they have predicted has come true exactly as they predicted, and here we are. Well, when we talk about fair, we are going to have to define our terms of reference for fair. Many of us believe socially that it's not fair that the poorest countries and the poorest people tend to suffer from climate change and the rich get richer and the poor get poorer is a very old story. We have evidence of that being true 2,000 years ago uh, and it's still true today. Some people think it's completely fair 
let the strong survive and let, let the weak suffer. Some people believe that. But these are all human points of view. And I just want to introduce for us to consider the natural point of view. Nature doesn't care. Nature doesn't care who lives and who dies. Nature, in that sense, is completely fair. And we know that in the natural world, the wolves eat the deer, the deer eat the grass, bacteria can infect the wolves, bacteria can take over the lake and kill all the fish. Uh, all these things happen, and we don't particularly have moral or emotional trauma over the fact that things are dying in the natural world all the time. But we are being human. Our sense of fairness and compassion is more focused on humans. So when humans suffer, we tend to feel it more, which is fair enough. But our notions of what might be fair and what might not be fair are purely human constructions. From the ecological point of view and from the point of view of nature, successful animals that overshoot their habitat tend to die back. We don't particularly cry great tears over the fact that the wolves will die back when they overconsume the deer. And what typically happens is that the older wolves die Less of the young wolves survive, the sickly wolves will die, and the same thing happens to humans. In our sense of fairness, it would be fair uh, to mitigate the impact on the poorer people and the poorer nations. But our societies show a reluctance to do that. Our societies, like most societies in all of human history, are driven and controlled by the rich and powerful who tend to control the world for themselves. We've been fighting social conflicts over this for as long as there's been written history. If you go back to the Epic of Gilgamesh or the Ramayana, the oldest stories in the world, you, you come across stories of fairness and unfairness in society and the fact that the rich and strong uh, dominate the poor and weak. And we're still dealing with these issues today. And for those of us who may feel compassion for the poor and the weak, we would like to see certain social changes. And historically, there have at times been social changes and revolutions where the, the poor and the weak have risen up and gained some marginal power to improve their lives. Oftentimes, what we see in a crisis is not more compassion and more fairness, but we often see less compassion and less fairness as people scramble to protect themselves. Is our human response going to reflect wisdom and compassion, or is it going to be a panic and everybody's looking after themselves? We've seen already, for example, in response to the economic impact, the U.S. Uh, central bank, and central banks in Europe and around the world are going to do the same thing. A massive, uh, I think it's about $1.5 trillion in the U.S., dumping money into the economy, lowering the interest rates, so you can now borrow money for, at zero interest rates, or the banks can borrow money from the central banks at zero interest rates. So the interest rates are going down. Trillions of dollars are being dumped into the economy, but those trillions of dollars are going to go to shore up and protect and bail out the largest corporations in the world, the banks, the oil companies, and so forth. Those trillions of dollars are not being earmarked to feed the hungry. They're being earmarked to save the largest corporations in the world. We're looking at, for sure, a major recession, probably the largest recession in not only your lifetime, my lifetime, and in recent memory. 
economic depression as large as anything that's ever happened to the global economy. And the immediate response from the large central banks is to bail out the large corporations, reduce the interest rates, and then buy back shares in large corporations. For example, you, you have many oil companies who've lost 50 to 60% of their value in the last year. This connects to other problems that oil companies are having, connected to overshoot and peak oil and decline of oil quality and increase of costs and so forth. So oil companies are having a very hard time anyway. Oil companies were, there were like some 200 bankruptcies of oil companies in the U.S. shale industry uh, in the last five years, totaling some hundred billion dollars of unpaid debts. And that was when oil was between 60 and $45 a barrel. Oil is now under 30 as of yesterday, $29 a barrel. These companies cannot survive. They're going broke. So one response that the large governments will have is to start buying shares in those companies in order to prop the share price up. Japan's already doing it. And the U.S., I don't know for absolute certain, but I will bet the U.S. is going to start buying shares from these large corporations. They've already given the large corporations over a trillion dollars. The cash is now available. Here it is. You know, in this sense, we see our societies responding and reacting not much different than the Persians 3,000 years ago or the Romans 2,000 years ago, you know, or the British Empire or any, anything else in history. The rich and powerful protect themselves first. We may wonder if this pandemic will wake people up enough that we may use whatever available resources we have to speed up the transition to renewable energy and let the oil companies that are going broke and going bankrupt, let them drop out of existence. It's possible that, you know, one of the responses would be that humanity begins to wake up to these fundamental problems that we have of of growth and overshoot and capitalism. I mean, capitalism is one of our fundamental social problems. It's a social problem because capitalism was designed by the wealthy and the powerful, and no surprise, it was designed to support the wealthy and powerful. Capitalism is based on the idea of the rich get richer. If you've got cash, you've got money, you can invest in things and own things and own the means of production and own the land and, and own people, essentially, through wages and make more money. You know, I see people in, in our part of the world, I see people in uh, the Western world, middle-class bourgeois society, rushing off to the superstores to hoard essential goods and food to protect themselves and their family, which is completely understandable. Uh, it's what, you know, it's an instinct of nature to protect yourself first. And if you see a danger coming, you're going to want to isolate yourself and not be exposed to the danger and, and get what you need to survive and, and to keep your children healthy and so forth. So that seems to be the first response. I don't see a, a large-scale response to react to the fundamental questions of overshoot, capitalism, militarism, and the other problems that our society faces. And I don't know if we can be hopeful. Now, it, it's possible because the pandemic is exposing all of these weaknesses of our system. And it's not so much that the pandemic is creating these problems for us. It's exposing the problems. And so, for example, China has reduced its GDP, its production, its 
its national production by about 25%. Guess what? It has also reduced its carbon emissions by about 25%. So just as in earlier recessions, the only time in modern history that we have ever reduced carbon emissions has been during a recession. Now, do you think anybody's going to connect the dots and realize that the only way we're going to achieve lower carbon emissions is to actually lower our economic expectations and to slow down our economy? No one, not even most environmentalists, although some are, but very few environmentalists are even suggesting that we should slow down our economies. No nation, no national government is suggesting we slow down our economies. None of the media are suggesting we slow down our economies. And yet it is the only thing in our recent history that has ever resulted in lowering our carbon emissions. And no one's willing to connect the dots. And this, again, it shows you people are more concerned about their personal level of consumption and not losing their job and not losing all the benefits they have of whatever place they have in modern society to solve the problem. They want... We're hoping that we can solve the problem by building electric cars and windmills and solar panels. But that's not going to solve the problem. It hasn't solved it yet. So we're kind of trapped. If I had a seat at any international or national table that uh, is formulating policy, I would be looking at this coronavirus and I'd be saying, if everybody's traveling less, we're going to burn a lot less carbon and we're going to lower our emissions worldwide. Uh, So how about we travel less and less frivolous travel? Let's make sure that travel is is necessary and important, you know, not not just traveling for for entertainment. The fact that we can work from home now and and have uh, electronic communication, uh, we could take advantage of that. We could have less travel in the inner city, have more people working from home. Uh, we need to localize everything, which is happening now in the because of this pandemic. We're now in a situation where communities are being asked to self isolate. So now we're going to have to rely on each other more. And this is a good thing. This is one of the solutions to overshoot. One of the solutions to overshoot is localization, localization of everything, which is the opposite of globalization. So we need to reverse globalization, slow down our economies, localize everything, which might be less efficient in the classical sense of efficiency, but more sustainable. So we live more simply. We live more simple lifestyles. We consume less stuff. We have less plastic junk from all over the world that's manufactured in Asia and brought to North America, or, you know, maybe we don't eat avocados in Canada during the winter time that come from Mexico or Puerto Rico or wherever they come from, that we understand that we just have to live more simply. And the other thing that happens with localization of, say, food, for example, and resources is that we have more diversity. In any ecological system, diversity is proportional to the strength and resilience of that system. When we create monocultures in the world, it's easier for diseases and pandemics to take hold. We're more vulnerable to black swan events like a pandemic, wars, conflicts, where we we become more vulnerable to something that might come along and cause a reduction in a particular food monoculture, for example just an ecological collapse. So monocultures create the conditions for collapse. Diversity creates the conditions for resilience. We're not responding to this threat before it's beyond our control. This threat is beyond our control already. 
we're responding because it is beyond our control. And so we're realizing that we have to be ultra careful and safe. But does this give me hope that we'll be able to make these same choices once the virus has passed? Are we going to go, wow, look, we, we were able to make that choice there. Why don't we do the same thing for climate change or species diversity loss? It doesn't particularly give me hope because I, I haven't ever seen that translated. It's perfectly natural for people to want to protect themselves in the face of a virus that they can catch and could cause death or serious illness for themselves and their family. Again, natural evolution taught us to be very careful to protect ourselves and to protect our offspring, our family. So evolution taught us to do that, and it's a good thing. So we have instincts to protect ourselves. And if we see a danger in our immediate personal jeopardy, we respond to protect ourselves. We are not taught by evolution to protect ourselves from more vague, long-distance, future, generalized threats like climate change, even though we may be intellectually able to understand that people are dying and will die in the future, and that other species will die and the earth itself will suffer the consequences of severe climate change. But it's not an immediate threat that people's emotional and instinctive response will then respond to. We are not evolutionarily trained to respond to long-term future threat that's possibly not a threat to us personally, might be a threat to the next generation, might be a threat to people 100 years from now, might be a threat to poor people in some other part of the world that isn't me and isn't my community and not my children. Uh, it might be a threat to other species. We're not really made to necessarily care about those things. It may turn out that that's a shortcoming that we will pay dearly for. I was discussing the fact that natural evolution taught us to look after ourselves and our families and our children. However, we can see with the response of our response to the virus that some people have made a choice to limit their own travel, limit their own social movements and simplify their lives for a while for the benefit of everybody. I would like to point out that, that natural evolution also taught us the value of compassion. Compassion is a real thing. It doesn't particularly have to be taught to, say, young children. Young children naturally feel compassionate, not just for other humans, but for other creatures. Compassion is a real thing, and it evolved in animals, specifically people, um, for very real survival value of caring about other people. Now, some people appear to have a greater dose of compassion than others. But I would point out also that about 9 million people a year die of starvation on Earth. That's about 24,000, 25,000 a day starved to death every day. But there's no big social movement to end this crisis. If 25,000 people a day were dying from this virus, we'd be going nuts because we might end up being one of them. Because here's something that's interesting that does kind of level the playing field is that the rich and powerful can catch the coronavirus. The rich and powerful can't necessarily catch poverty. So the rich and powerful aren't afraid that they're going to be one of the 25,000 people a day starving to death. But they might be afraid if 25,000 people a day were dying from the virus because that could impact them and their family and their loved ones. 
long ago, the, the best oil in the world has already been produced and drained. And so we're going into deeper wells and offshore and the Arctic, and we're going into the tar sands and the shale oil, which is the dregs of the oil. And that oil is more expensive to produce. It's a less quality oil, uh, much lower net energy, meaning it costs more energy to produce than the earlier oil. And it's, you know, the tar sands, if you invest a barrel of oil in energy equivalent to produce oil in the tar sands, you get three barrels out. That's three to one. That's pretty low. It used to be when you could you could invest a barrel of oil in the 50s and 60s in, into an oil well, you'd get 100 barrels out. So we've gone from 100 to one net energy to three to one net energy. The industry is collapsing under the fact that oil is being depleted. Well, now, because of the coronavirus slowdown, and because of the slowdown of production in China, there's been a sudden drop in demand for oil products all over the world. And the price of oil has dropped from around $45 a barrel now to under 30. In the last few days, it's been $29 a barrel. And none of these companies in the tar sands or in the shale oil fields can survive on that. I wouldn't say that the shareholders of ExxonMobil and Chevron are have actually caught poverty, but They've lost a lot of money, billions of dollars. What I'm saying is that the oil crisis and the pandemic and, and global warming and species diversity collapse, they're all connected. And they're all connected to human growth, the growth of the human population, the growth of human consumption. And sure, it's true that the rich nations and the, and the wealthier people consume the most stuff and bear most of the responsibility uh, for the consumption of resources in the world. But just the sheer growth of human population alone, just like the sheer growth of wolves in a watershed, you don't have to be rich to have an impact on the environment. Sure, people can have as many children as they want, but you're going to face the consequences, and the consequences is the species is going to collapse, and that's what's happening. Are the animals benefiting? The animals benefit, the, the rest of nature benefits whenever humanity slows down. So ironically, during the Gulf War, the Persian Gulf was cleaner after the Gulf War than it had been in, in decades because there weren't oil ships going up and down the Persian Gulf. You know, if, if humanity just, for some reason, if there was some extremely powerful pandemic that completely wiped out humanity, every other species on the planet would benefit. Now. That's just the fact of nature. I don't say that because I don't like humans. I love, I love humans. I love my life. I love my family and my friends. And I love humanity. And I love all that humanity has achieved. Uh, well, most of, some of what humanity has achieved. And I admire humanity. But it's not the last word. It's not the reason for the earth or for life itself. Life goes on without humans. And so when human society slows down, yeah, species benefit. There'll be less forest destruction. There'll be less habitat destruction. There'll be more homes for species diversity to uh, begin to return in certain places. So, yeah, slowing down the human economy is always a good thing for all the other species. And some of them may even avoid extinction because the human economy slows down. If we learn that lesson, then this will be worth it. You've been listening to The Lesson of the Virus. This has been Max Tyson with Cortez Currents. 
This program was funded by a grant from the Community Radio Fund of Canada and the Government of Canada's Local Journalism Initiative.